Good morning. May it please the court and counsel. I'm Julie Nelson, and I represent the appellant Jose Alarcon, Jr. This court granted appellant's uh, petition for review to address the following issue. What does it mean to leave one's primary address within the context of the predatory offender registration statute under 243-166 subdivision 3AA? We are requesting that this court find or hold based on the plain language of the statute that a person leaves a primary address only when the person permanently departs the address without intent or ability to return to it. Counsel, and on that issue, um, when it, in regards to the ability to return, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand the record to be that um, your client departed or left the hotel on April 3rd. Um, there was an attempt to collect or pay um, the bill for the hotel by the hotel, which was declined, relative's credit card, um, and that there was a boot placed on the motel door. Correct. And that 24 hours later, not having a way to contact your client or having heard from your client, the property was then removed from that room and placed in storage. Correct. Um, and he was checked out of the hotel by the hotel staff. Correct. So tell me what impact that has on the ability to return. Because he can no, they re-rented the room, as I understand it, or they wanted it available to re-rent. Yeah, there's no, the state never showed or proved that he actually re-rented the room. It was simply that they had removed the belongings with the intention of re-renting the room. But what's important here is that the, the managers told in his note to Mr. Alarcon, put it on his door and said, you can come back. You can come back to your room. You can come back and collect your belongings. All you have to do is come do. So there wasn't this, he wasn't precluded from returning. There was nothing that the manager ever said that said, hey, get out. You're done. You can't come back here. So there was this option for him to come back. And he very well likely may have come back had he not been arrested. Is there any interest he, any uh, information in the record that he actually knew the credit card was declined? There's absolutely no information. Or that the, state the boot was put on the door? I'm, excuse me? Or that the boot was put on the door? No, the state never proved any of that. But whose responsibility is it to pay for the room? Well, ultimately, it would be Mr. Alarcon's, and he had a, like you said, a relative's credit card from Texas that was on file. So that was being routinely charged every week for the upcoming week. Now, did Mr. Alarcon know that it had been declined? No, there's no evidence that there was. And I would suggest that just because, you know, first of all, I'll give you an example. Last week I was having lunch with friends and I paid with my credit card. Guess what? My credit card had expired and I had forgotten. I got a new credit card two weeks ago. I forgot to put it in my wallet. That was my credit card and I forgot. Now this is somebody else's. This is a relative's credit card and everything's been going along smoothly. So how would he know necessarily? And again, even if he should have known or could have known, which is not the standard as the state had said that uh, made a comment about he knew or should have known. That's not the standard here. There was no evidence that he knew. And am I correct that he was released the following day? So he was arrested on April 6th, but was released on April 7th. We don't have the evidence. We don't know when he was released. And even if he had been released, Your Honor, I'd like to point out that the state charged him with failure to, failure to register from the 3rd to the 6th. So frankly, whatever happened after that doesn't play into the specific facts of this case and whether or not he violated during the 3rd to the 6th. But I don't know that he was actually released on the 7th. 
Counsel, does the record tell us what he was doing between April 3 and April 6? Uh, the most we know is that from, from other uh, testimony is that he had been at a friend's house for at least part of that time. And I'll point out as well that this was a weekend. There's nothing to say that on the prior weekend or the weekend before that that he didn't leave the hotel for three days. And it's really important that this, that this court understand and recognize that there is nothing in the POR statute that requires a registrant to be accountable for his time and his whereabouts every minute of every day of every week of every month. There's nothing in there. You, are, you have to be accountable for your primary address, a secondary address, which is someplace that you stay at occasionally or regularly. This might have been a, a friend's house that he stayed at just that one time. He had no requirement to register that address. So there's nothing wrong with him not being at the hotel. He needn't be there. That's his primary address. That's his dwelling. That's where he lives. Counsel, can you address what the, um, uh, who has the burden of proof at the uh, district court level in terms of the violation and the standard of review that we apply here? The state has the burden of proof, uh, obviously, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did violate it. The uh, standard of review here, because, uh, because uh, Mr. Erlerkhan is challenging that he did not actually violate the statute, that's going to be a statutory interpretation that this court will review de novo, but whether or not he actually did indeed do that would be reviewed um, um, under the circumstantial um, evidence test under Al Nasir, which is that the circumstance of proof must be consistent with the hypothesis that the accused is guilty and inconsistent with any other rational hypothesis except guilt. The argument here is that there is an equally rational hypothesis that he was simply away from his uh, primary address for a couple of days uh, but did not leave his primary address. Absolutely. Because, and again, one of the things we look at is, again, if we're going to look at, you think about it this way, and I, I, I set it up that there has to be a, per there's, a, there's clearly a permanency requirement to leaving. One doesn't accidentally leave or wander off from his home or primary address unless maybe there's Alzheimer's involved, perhaps. Um, but we don't, you don't leave by accident. There's an intentional leaving. Um, or perhaps there's something that happened beyond your control. For example, your house burned down. You had to leave. Okay, so there's this permanency requirement. You don't, you don't have to report just because you went to work or you went to the store. You're intending on coming back. Counsel, as I look at the statute, and let me know if I'm wrong, but first, as I understand it, you don't dispute that Mr. Alarcon knew about the registration requirements. No, not at all. Okay. So you need that kind of knowledge, but you also, I think your argument is that in order to actually violate the statute and under our Mikulak case, you need to know that you can't, you either have to intend to leave and you take actions that show that, mm -hmm. or you need to be kicked out and know that you've been kicked out. Is, Correct. is that, uh, so there's two types of knowledge involved, one of the statute itself, and then when you're talking about a situation where a third party has taken action, you need to know that that action's occurred before you can be uh, convicted of not registering within 24 hours of leaving a permanent address, a primary address. I would agree with Your Honor, yes. There is, again, just to start with, to leave 
must have this permanency to it. And once that's proved, and let's say it's, for example, he didn't leave by himself, he was planning on coming back, that was not his intention, to then, then the state would need to prove that he knew he couldn't come back. And again, in this case, though, just to be clear, and that was not the case. He could have come back. The manager was quite clear about that. Come on back, pay up, you can have your room back or another room. But even if he couldn't come back, mm -hmm. if he didn't know that, he still couldn't be convicted, right? Correct. You don't even have to get, in some sense, get to the issue of whether he could come back or not, Correct. as long as the proof isn't there that he knew he couldn't come back. That is correct, Your Honor. Mikulak, you have to be, you knowingly violate, you have to knowingly violate at the time of the, you have to know you're violating at the time of the violation. And there's nothing in the record that would show that he knew that. So, um, and I would like to point out as far as the belongings go, getting a little bit back um, to Justice McKeague's statement, think about this, he did leave belongings in the room. This wasn't garbage, this wasn't trash. They had packed these things up. These weren't things that they simply threw out. This we don't really know what was in the room. As far as I understand, the record doesn't tell us what was in the room, just that there were belongings in the room. Correct, the state never uh, elicited that information from the manager, but the fact that the manager did have those packed up and stored, uh, there must have been some value to it. It wasn't though he was just packing up garbage that had been left behind. And in fact, Mr. Ellercon did a couple weeks um, after his arrest contact the manager and go back to get those things. So that, that would suggest at the very least that there was a value to these belongings. Um, that this was not just, like I said, garbage thrown about, papers or, or wrappers or what have you. There was some value to these belongings that would suggest at the very least that he was planning on coming back to that hotel room. That is where he resided. That's where he lived. You know, the, the, uh, interest, one of the interesting things about the statute, um, it, this is, the statute's come before this court on a number of occasions for various reasons. It's a difficult statute. But one of the things that I find interesting about it is there is a lot of particularity about it as well. It is very specific in some very important ways. It tells a registrant exactly what they must register. Their primary address, their secondary address, their, their motor vehicle, where they go to school, where they're, where they're, um, where they're employed, and then any, any properties that they have or lease. And, and it gets really specific in that these are the things you have to register, but under uh, subsection, I'm sorry, subdivision 4A, it's very clear that the only time that, these, that an update has to be given is when a change in circumstances, a change in circumstances make that information no longer applicable. That's what triggers it. When that information, when the primary address, or the secondary address, or a motor vehicle, any of those addresses is no longer applicable, that's when the person is required to register it. It's very specific what triggers it. It's not just any time they leave, and that's again why we're requesting, while it's clear within the statute, the plain and ordinary language of the statute, there, there, there's permanency requirement Council, what here. impact would it have, let's say that um, his uh, probation officer or agent uh, went to find him at the hotel and learns that he had, has been checked out, that his belongings have been removed from the room, um, that he has no way of reaching him within that three, three to six. What impact does that have? Because the probation officer is supposed to be able to go to his residence and have a way to reach the offender. I mean, that's why they're being watched and that's mm -hmm. why they have to register. 
So that seems to me to cut the other direction because he would be informed that he's checked out of the hotel, that his belongings are no longer in that room and are in storage. That would suggest to me that he no longer is living at, at that hotel. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I think it's a difference of whether or not he'd been with the with the agent going to find that he would he was not there. I think we have those exact same circumstances that we have here. Had he actually left, because in that situation, I assume that the agent would violate him for not being uh, where he was supposed to be. But again, I think we have to look at the bigger picture here. Had he actually left the hotel, we st we still have the exact same question, which is he was registered there. He registered that as his primary address. He left for three days. The credit card was declined. We don't know whether he knew that it was declined. It looked like by all, all accounts he was planning on returning there. There was no reason why he couldn't return there because the manager said he could. So I think we have the exact same argument that we have regardless of whether the agent showed up looking for him or whether he was arrested. Counsel, let me uh, test where you draw the line with the hypothetical. Yes. Let's say you've got somebody living in a hotel and uh, the hotel burns down. Is the uh, offender required to register within 24 hours at wherever he's going to be staying? Absolutely. All right, now he goes away for a two-day vacation. The hotel burns down while he's gone. He doesn't know the hotel is burned down. Is he required to register? Well, I and think when, when... And when, when, when does the time period, the 24 hours, start for his requirement to register? I would say it would start as soon as he finds out that his hotel has burned down, which would be upon his return from his vacation. Uh, because, again, that shows that he has no ability to, to go back to where he was residing. He knows that his, he's, law, he's essentially lost his primary address. Yeah, it's uh, when he knows. That's the... Right. Correct. Or, when he, for example, same thing with when he leaves. It all comes back to when did he leave, whether that is on his own volition or whether he is forcefully removed for whatever reason or whatever cause. Um, I also want to just make a, a, a point here, too. One of the things that the state talks a lot about in his brief is this right, a right to, to live somewhere. And, and this is not, we're not talking about rights here. We're talking about an ability. And I want to be clear on that because a right has some sort of, it seems to me has a legal obligation to it. We're not talking about a light, right here. The statute's very clear that when you, a dwelling is a place where you live either under a formal or informal agreement, not by right. So this wasn't a matter of he had, didn't have a right to go back um, in fact, he had an informal agreement that he could come back so long as he had paid. And that would apply, I think, uh, in most cases. A lot of people may not have their own home in which they have a legal right to it, uh, but they might live with someone uh, or a relative or a friend, and they have an agreement that they're allowed to live there. So I just want to make that distinction between uh, right and agreement. Um, I be also believe that in the vast majority of cases, under predatory offender registration, uh, failure to register. This rule is not going to necessarily, will not necessarily, will not need to necessarily be applied because in the vast majority of cases, there is either so much direct evidence or the circumstantial evidence is so strong that the registrant has left, has, has left his primary address. Um, law enforcement goes to check up and the person who answers the door says, oh, he's not here, hasn't been here for three months. Or the registrant simply fails to uh, file any of the necessary Counsel, paperwork. Counsel, how many days would he have to be, long, be gone in your um, view from the hotel for him to have 
essentially abandon that as his primary address? In this particular case, I, I think that's difficult to to know because he was, if even if he had been gone a week or two weeks, if he believed that his credit card was continually being um, used, it was on file and there hadn't been any problems and he had no reason or cause to believe, then I don't believe that he would have needed to register that. Now, if he had was staying somewhere else and he was staying there regularly or occasionally as a secondary address, then he would re be required to uh, register that. But until there was some sort of evidence that but he Wouldn't knew. that be a different charge? Excuse me for interrupting, but if, if, he, he, if he has uh, paid at a, at a hotel routinely, but he's in fact staying somewhere else regularly, I mean, that, that could be a violation of the Registration Act, but under a different section. Absolutely, Your Honor, that is correct. And he was not charged with that. He was charged specifically with failing to register within 24 hours of leaving his primary address without having another primary address. So under, those, under that statute, uh, there was not sufficient evidence to convict. And under the statute, is there some requirement if you do go, let's say you want to go on a week vacation within the state, do, do you have to, what are, the, what are the requirements before somebody can do that? It would depend on whether or not the person is under supervision or not. Certainly, if a person's under supervision, they're going to report to their probation agent, just as Mr. Alarcon had done uh, prior to, I think, moving to Elbert Lee, that he wanted to go to Texas for a week or, or two or what have you to see some relatives. So he discussed that with his probation agent and what he would need to do down in Texas. If someone is not on supervision, then again, he need not do anything. He has his primary address. If he is just going there to another part of the state to vacation, um, whether or not he, I think that the statute's not clear whether he would have to do anything, really probably that he doesn't have to do anything because the statute doesn't says he, the statute does not say that he has to do anything or that circumstance. Again, unless he was staying there regularly or occasionally, which I don't believe this court has ruled on what that exactly means yet. So, um, if the court doesn't have any further questions, I will yield the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. You have Thank five you. minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Walker. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel, I am David Walker, Freeborn County Attorney. I represent the respondent in this case regarding what it means to leave your address in the context of the predatory offender registration uh, statute. In this case, I think it's very important to recognize uh, explicitly that this was a jury verdict determining that this defendant had left his primary address. They found him guilty of that. Counsel, so counsel, I'd like to ask you, though, going to the statute, because I couldn't quite tell from your brief if you agreed with the defense that it required some kind of permanency uh, when the person left. Because it, it seems like you agree if you go to the grocery store, if you go to work, if you go, you know, that sense of leave is not what the statute is, is getting at. So do you, does the state agree that it must show 
um, that they're, do you like the way the defense has, has phrased it, that there, there must be an intent to leave or um, some other action that shows you cannot return? I think it's a very important point in this case that 243-166 is not about permanence. I think, especially after Iverson, the legislature recognized that this court was saying, well, wait a second, we have people that are homeless. You can't say that the person just, when they leave, with a certain intent regarding permanence is in violation of the statute. The key is not permanence. This statute favors accountability. This statute Cou is about employment. Counsel, we have to define what does leave mean. And if you look in a dictionary, leave has two meanings. It means go away for a little bit of time, or it means departing and intending never to come back or, or you know, under circumstances where you can't come back. I so think it, it doesn't really help us to say this is about accountability. I mean, we're, we have to define the language in the statute. That's true, and the statute helps us a lot in that regard. If you look at it, for instance, you're not going to find the word vacation anyplace, and you're not going to find the word or an equivalent word of permanence that requires an offender to be in a, a residence permanently. So, They're counsel, not. let me make sure it's, I understand. It's about if, if somebody leaves for a three-day vacation, then they've left their permanent address, right? They that's your position? That's not my position. My position, though, is that if they leave their residence for any reason, if, if it is to stay overnight occasionally or regularly, which is another thing that changed since Iverson, they have to report that as a secondary residence. They don't have the option of just vacationing or leaving the state well, as you would if you weren't on Let probation. me try a hypothetical on you. Um, I, I'm a registered offender. I'm living in a hotel in Albert Lee. And on Friday at noon, I go to visit my grandmother in Fairmont. It's her 90th birthday. It's a very happy occasion. And I'm going to stay in Fairmont at Grandma's house until Sunday night. Friday night, hours after I left, the hotel burns down. I don't have a permanent address anymore. But I don't, I don't know that, so I don't register, re-register within 24 hours. Am I guilty of, of violating the statute? If you have not registered a secondary address, that's what the concept of secondary address is about, because that would be a place that you were staying but not regularly. So th it's true. This so I've got to register. I should have registered Grandma's address, on the, knowing that I was going to visit her for three days. You should as a backup in case the hotel burns down. You should definitely talk to your probation officer, but not just to cover the eventuality that the hotel um, burns down. Yeah, well, is there the a difference between registering and talking to your probation officer? Uh, it depends. If you talk to your probation officer, your probation officer can share that information with the POR. But for statutory purposes, it, so if you talk so for statutory purposes, that's a secondary address. For statutory purposes, it is sufficient for a person to go in and. But doesn't having a second doesn't POR. having a secondary address assume you have a primary address? That's not the way it's defined, is it? I mean, the a secondary well, how can address, you have a secondary address if you don't have a? primary address. The secondary address is defined in the statute. It's a place where you stay um, occasionally or um, uh, it says either oh, regularly or occasionally. And but, that's something the legislature changed since Iverson to address this whole concern about permanence. It's not about permanence. It's about accountability. It's about telling the PO and but if the you're, if you're staying there occasionally, are. if you're staying there occasionally, 
you're not, you still have to have some place else where you're staying when it's not occasionally, which is your primary address, right? Or another secondary address. So you can have like 15 secondary addresses and no primary address? That's the way the statute reads. You, you don't need, a, oh, you don't need a primary address? A homeless person doesn't have a primary address. If you're not homeless, okay. And that's again, since Iverson, the legislature said, okay, let's take care of that problem because you said, don't do that to people. You said if a person's homeless, that person doesn't have a primary address. Don't tell us that he's violating the law and throw him in prison because Does a homeless that. person have to find a, a secondary address? File a secondary address? Not necessarily. They might have to report to law enforcement weekly. That's, again, a change since Iverson. The legislature said, we get what you're telling us here. If the person can't live someplace permanently and they have a problem with that, you know, a lot of people, I don't know a lot of people, but some people have a grave difficulties establishing a permanent reliable, secure residence. And you said in Iverson, don't throw a person in prison because of that. If they don't have a reliable address, then they report to law enforcement on a weekly basis. And then the legislature went even further and said, I'll tell you what, if you can't do that because it's difficult, and it is difficult for some people, then we'll establish another arrangement with you so it doesn't have to be weekly. You can make some other arrangement with us and then law enforcement can be practical and sensible with that person. So counsel, let me slice the salami even a little thinner here. I go to grandma's at noon on Friday over in Fairmont. I, I intend to come back Friday night, um, but there's a massive snowstorm and I can't get back until 25 hours after I've left when the, the plows plow between Fairmont and Albert Lee. In the meantime, the hotel is burned down. Have I violated the statute? Impossibility is a defense. I would say no. If okay. it's impossible that for you to register or to report to your PO, to report to local law enforcement, it can't be said that you violated the statute. This is not about trying to force predators to do impossible things. This is about accountability and saying stealth and unpredictability is a bad thing if you're trying to rehabilitate a person and disrupt predatory behavior. If you want to disrupt that behavior, it is about telling the person, tell us where you live. If you know five days in advance that you're going to leave your primary address, tell us five days in advance. If you don't, if it's impossible, and, and you lose your primary address, or there's a fire or something like that, then you have to report to law enforcement. Council, um, do, you, do you agree that the state has to prove that Alarcon knew that the hotel had booted him out? Does he have to prove that the motel knew? That he, he, he had had, that the motel had terminated his living arrangement there? I think in this Does situation... Does he have to have knowledge of that? The jury could reasonably infer that he did. Well, um, I, I mean, I think that's I your that's argument, different. right? I mean, your argument is that all of these circumstances show that he must have known. I that think is? that was the argument you presented to the jury. So it seems to me you're agreeing that, that he needs to have knowledge that he can no longer live there as his primary address. As his primary address. He has an obligation either to register that primary address or to register a secondary address. He did neither in this situation. So the secondary address doesn't save him. And it's one thing to argue on appeal regarding secondary addresses. You know darn well he was not going to bring that up in the district court because if he starts talking about where he was living with friends or something, then he's in violation of the secondary address. This is charged as a violation of 243.166. Uh, the, the question was what instruction would the jury receive regarding what constitutes a violation, which section of the statute he violated. So even if 
he did not know, even if you were to find that, nevertheless, if he's going to go stay someplace else from April 3rd to April 6th and never even returned on April 6th, never again returned to live there, never paid for an extension, never indicated to the manager that he was going to extend, didn't give the manager any information about how to get in touch with him so that he could extend, he had left his primary address, but that would also have mounted to additional proof that he had violated the statute by failing to uh, register a secondary address. That's why that never came up at, at trial. There was no evidence that he stayed at a, a secondary address and registered a secondary address. Even now, we had uh, Mr. Rittmiller of the uh, BCA testify. We heard from him in uh, January of 2015 when he filed that verification of address form. The next time the BCA POR heard from Mr. Alarcon was when he registered a change of his primary address to the Steele County Jail. So that's another situation. He knew he had to register that primary address change. He had a primary address change when he was arrested and put in the Freeborn County Jail. But even being fair to him, did, you, know, did you charge him That's not being charged. That? I mean, the only, the only period being charged here is a very short period between April 3rd and April 5th. And it seems to me, given the state's burden at trial, the fact that there's no evidence whatsoever of what Mr. Alicarn was doing, that seems to me to be a problem. When we have this really strict review uh, on circumstantial evidence, because I agree, you you probably have a reasonable inference that he, that he knew, but I, I don't think the state has shown that the, the that the other inference is unreasonable. That that he had some knowledge that is that the payment failed, that the the motel had put a boot on his door, and that he couldn't return. And I think at this point we have to analyze this question of what a a rational uh, a hypothesis is under this Al-Masir standard. And, and we is, don't give deference it, to the jury on that. No, and I, yeah. I, I get that much, okay. but is it a rational hypothesis when you base your supposition upon no facts in the evidence that suggest that he had another address? He did not register another address. He didn't give a change of address form. And he was discovered in the backseat of a vehicle illegally armed. Those were the circumstances under which he was found. He was not arrested in a home with friends. He was arrested in the backseat of a car illegally armed, which suggests that he had a reason to drive by the courthouse, as the jury could readily have found. They were sitting in the courthouse. He was arrested within blocks of the courthouse. He could easily have reported to law enforcement a change in his address or a secondary address. How do you account for the time that he was absent where his probation officer didn't know where he was? Because he didn't know that he had been locked out. He but, still thought that he had an address. I, I really don't get your argument. But he was absent from that address, and you're going on the assumption, I think, Your Honor, that we can leave our addresses when we want and stay away for as many days as we want. The well, statute but, uh, the, does not give you that leeway. Well, secondary address says it's a place where you regularly or occasionally stay when you're not staying at your primary address. So you need a primary address before you can even have a secondary address. Well, when it's, it says, if it says when you're not staying at your primary address and you don't have But a you didn't charge him with that. He well, your, your argument is that he should have registered a secondary address, and that proves that he didn't have a primary address. That just doesn't make any sense under the statute. I'm saying if you're going to assume that he was legally absent from his primary address for three days, then you must be assuming that he had a secondary one. If you're not, then you're assuming he had another primary address. 
unless you're assuming something that's not in the statute. The I statute think, covers I think the situation that the statute, where someone leaves. I think that there's room in the statute to find that you can stay somewhere once and it's not occasionally staying overnight. At then, then how do you define occasionally? Well, we'll get a case on that, I'm sure. Stay tuned. <laughs> and it's not just occasionally. It's not just occasionally, it's regularly. Or occasionally, right? Regularly or occasionally, and the word occasionally was inserted after Iverson because regularly means, well, you have to prove that it was every week or every day or something. Occasionally means not regularly. I mean, if you look it up, it means not often or not regular. But it, does so it mean once or twice? That's what we, that's what we don't know, and that's, he wasn't charged with that. And I think, you know, you'll hear people say very casually, well, I stay there occasionally. Yeah, very occasionally. You've been there once. I, I don't think that's a technical definition of occasional, but what is the technical definition? And is there any proof in the record about any of this? Did you prove any of this about where he stayed or where he didn't stay? That's the concern here. He has an obligation to register when he leaves. He was gone April 3rd. We know that because he was locked out. That's so the only argument you're making primary. is that he should have made a register to secondary address, which you didn't argue which you didn't charge him with. This is the argument you're making. Well, the problem is... I mean, you're making this assumption that he knew that he left it primar, a prim, how, his primary address. How but where did be, you prove that? How would it be fair to charge him with, with staying at a secondary uh, uh, address if we didn't have one? I mean, I get the point, but he, uh, what I'm saying now is he has to... You have to account for where he was if you're saying he was elsewhere legally. Well, one has to, is my point. If you're going to say there's a rational hypothesis in... Well, right, but... I don't have the burden to disprove an irrational hypothesis. And that's the concern that you have here. I don't think it's you supported You do by have evidence. that burden. You, to, you have to show that there's no other rational, reasonable hypothesis. But I said I didn't have the, the obligation to disprove an irrational hypothesis. Oh, I'm sorry. I heard rational. I, that's what I was I'm trying sorry. to say. I yeah. may have misspoke. So. No. But, that's... but that's the concern. There has to be some evidence upon which you base a, a a belief or a conclusion that he was living elsewhere legitimately. And what are the facts in this case that, that, that allow you to draw such a hypothesis? I mean, I take the word hypothesis to be a scientific word that means it's an explanation of observable uh, phenomenon. You have to have some observation, some fact in the record upon which to base that. So if he had registered a secondary address, if we knew about a, uh, an address in which he was staying, and if the defense had tried to raise that in a district court, if they had said, yeah, he was staying someplace else, then he, we would have Counsel, gotten instruction. Counsel, what, if any, relevance is there to the fact that he left his stuff at the hotel? Um, I, can, I do appreciate that ordinarily people live with their stuff. You keep your stuff with you. So when you leave an address and some of your stuff is behind, you think, hey, a person is going to return to get that stuff. He returned a couple of weeks later. We don't know the nature of the stuff, how many things he had there. We also know it was that it, it was a, a, a motel room. We know the stuff was bagged up and put in the laundry room. There wasn't a lot of stuff there. Can't so, you infer, I mean, isn't it reasonable to infer that because he left his things there, whatever those things were, that he intended to come back? It is reasonable to infer that he, came, that he intended to come back to get his stuff. And I think that's one of the factors to consider in this, in this case. So I agree with that. It's reasonable well, to under our circumstantial evidence standard, then why isn't that fatal for the state? Because if, even if he intended to return, it does not demonstrate that he intended to return to live there. 
What would demonstrate that is that he actually made arrangements to live there, by, as for instance, by talking to the motel manager. The, the natural inference with a motel is that you're going to stay for the period for which you rent it. He was renting on a weekly basis. He knew that every week that terminated, he knew that he had to talk to the motel manager. So your manager point minimum, is... Your he went halfway into the next rental Your point period. is he needed to make some financial arrangements to continue to live at the hotel. I would remove the word financial from that question and then agree with it. He needed to make some arrangements. He made no arrangements. He no longer had an informal agreement. And to say he might have had an informal agreement if only he had, he had come back and made such an agreement is not what the statute uh, requires. It requires you to have an informal or formal agreement, and he lost that. But he knew that every week he had to come in he didn't come in every week. He did it for 10 weeks consecutive, and then he stopped. And I don't think you could, it's reasonable or rational to argue that the moment he stopped coming into his primary residence and stopped paying and, um, um, and was uh, arrested then days later, after three days running, he was arrested in the back of a, of a, of a vehicle, so you know he had the ability to report to his PO, he had the ability well, to go back to the Well, you're assuming, I mean, you, we, you're assuming that he's running for three days. I mean, there's, I think one of the problems that I'm having with this case, candidly, counsel, is there's a lot of assumptions running both ways and people are assuming things. You have the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, that he, in fact, violated the primary residence statute. And I'm, I'm troubled because I think the implications can cut both ways. And it seems to me if that's the case, you lose, given our, given our circumstantial evidence test. We, Tell me why I'm wrong. You're, you're wrong because he had a specific agreement to stay there for a week. His agreement to stay there ended. So he lost the right to stay there. He lost the ability to stay there. The land, if you want to give a person notice that they've lost their primary residence, what would you do? The best way to give them notice is not to leave a, a message on the answering machine. It's to nail a notice to the door. He had a notice on the door of his primary residence, and he didn't notice it, according to the defense. That's what they would argue. But it was right there in his primary residence for three days, and he was claiming that he didn't notice it. That's evidence that okay, he didn't return so to his counsel, primary what's, residence. I think your, your theory of the case, in part, was that he must have known that the, door, the boot was on the door. Am I right about that? If it was his primary residence, yes. Okay. He would have known that. Let's say there is clear evidence that he did not know the boot was on the door. Would he still, I think by the argument you made earlier to me, he still would have violated the statute. That's true. Okay, so, I, I so you've got two true. alternative arguments. He must have known the boot was there, but even if he didn't, he still viola violated the I statute? Believe, yes, Your Honor, I believe that that is true. Because he had, a, he had an agreement, he had not just an obligation. The idea isn't that you know, we should punish him because he was irresponsible about checking on the, on the residents, but he knew that every week his right to stay there ended unless he did something about it. He knew that. So he had noticed from the, what, they, what they put on the door, he had noticed from the, from the uh, 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 lock on the door, but also he knew every week that he had to extend, he had to exercise an option to stay at this primary residence. And the ordinary natural inference from a, a motel room is that you leave. You leave at the end of the period of time you stay there. Alarcon knew that he had to leave after a week unless he did something to change that situation. And that's true for everybody who stays at a hotel or motel. And also the fact that... And in that fact, isn't it in the record that sometimes he paid daily? Because he started out paying monthly, 
then it went to weekly, then there was some occasions where he had to pay day by day, and then I think it went back to weekly, as I recall. I, I think that's close, Your Honor. There was one occasion where he paid for a day, one, and then he went to uh, weekly, and then every week for 10 weeks uh, consecutive before April 3rd, he paid uh, uh, weekly. So I, I think that's an indication. He knew, hey, this and is when, not a place I'm going to pay. When you say he paid, who is he? I mean, oh, he... Alarcon. Right. I'm just saying, I'm giving him credit for the payment that was made. Right, but it wasn't actually him paying, it was his relative, right? Uh, it was his relative's credit card that was on, uh, that was given to the motel manager. And that just automatically processed every week? Um, or there's no, or there was no proof of that one way or the other? I agree with that, Your Honor. There's no proof one way or the other. I mean, he said that he ran it on a weekly basis to extend his stay. Correct, Your Honor. But, Counsel, if that's true, if he was running it on a weekly basis, it, it sort of goes to uh, uh, Ms. Nelson's uh, argument that there would be no reason for him to know that it wasn't continuing to run, that it had somehow been invalidated or, or, or invalidated. He had no reason to know that, did he? Or well, at least you didn't prove that he knew that it, had, it, it expired, it had been declined. But I think it's, a, it's definitely a reasonable inference for the jury to draw. Every week, this man either had to extend his primary residence. That goes back to Justice residence. Anderson's point, though, that, oh, that is, a, and Justice Chudish's point, that's a re, you're right, that's a reasonable inference. But under Al-Nasir, there's, you have to, there's another reasonable inference, it seems to me, which is that he didn't know, right? Well, and, and that's, that's the balance you have to strike with Al-Nasir. That's, that's a, a, the difficult standard for me to apply here. I know... There's an indication now that we don't uh, defer to the jury on, on these questions, but you also start the Elnestir standard with saying, we're going to assume the jury uh, found all of the facts that are consistent with the conviction in this case, and then we're going to defer to those facts. You do that. You, you do that fact-finding, and then you say, okay, given those circumstances, with the circumstances here, this guy paid for 10 weeks running, then he left, stopped paying, and was caught in a vehicle uh, illegally armed. I mean, those circumstances could mean to a reasonable jury um, that uh, he is guilty of, of leaving do, that Do you agree, Counsel, that he has to knowingly violate the statute? He does. That's clear. And knowing means he ha not only has to know that he has the obligation, but that he knows he's in violation. So, Counsel, let's say instead of that credit card being dishonored, the uh, management of the hotel accidentally punched in the wrong number of the credit card. It turns out it was a good credit card, would have paid for the room, but they punch in the wrong number. And he still, he, he doesn't know that this has happened. He's out of the hotel for more than 24 hours. He doesn't register. Is he still guilty of a crime? This is part of the reason that I'm suggesting a five-factor test. As much, I mean, a five-factor test. Fund, it's fun, in my brief, you know, as, I mean, a five-factor test is fun, but that's I, not the real reason. I, I didn't, doing, I didn't pick know. up the five-factor test in your brief. Where in your brief is that? It's, it is in the brief, and I have, I have a, a bold headings there uh, for each one of the five factors that I'm suggesting that you apply to these situations. Um, I think it's a totality of the circumstances analysis. Each one of those five factors I'm drawing directly from the definition of primary address and dwelling uh, so that you can find, you can apply those factors. And it's the, the five factors are basically that he couldn't receive mail at the motel because the manager had no way of contacting Well, these are him. five factors for this specific case. They're not, um, they're not five factors. You're not suggesting a, a rule of law that contains five factors. I, I, would, be, I would be very flattered if you adopted my five-factor <laughs> test uh, to apply in well, all cases. Well, but some of the factors wouldn't apply in other cases. That's true. 
I, yeah. I mean, I think that's true. But I think, you know, the first factor is he couldn't receive mail. Then he was physically absent. His property was physically absent as of April 4th. His agreement to stay had expired. He didn't have the ability to re-enter the room. He had neither the legal right nor the physical ability to re-enter. If you apply all of those it's five essentially factors. A essentially a totality of the circumstances test to determine whether he has left. Exactly, Your okay. Honor. And it's one that I'm trying to distill directly from the statute, because if the statute is unambiguous, we just have to follow the language of the statute. And I think it's, they're plugged in in the definition of, uh, of um, a primary address and also... Um, um, secondary address and dwelling. So I, I believe um, that Alarcon was found guilty by the jury. They had, they had proof beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, there is no rational hypothesis that's inconsistent with his guilt in this case upon the circumstances proven uh, to the jury. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Nelson, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Just a couple of points. Um, as far as the jury verdict goes in this case, uh, clearly the jury needs guidance. You take a case like this, again, in the vast majority of the cases, I think we're going to find that there's really direct evidence or very, very strong circumstantial evidence. I think you could take this case, put it in a different courthouse with different prosecutor, different defense attorney, different jury, and come up with a different verdict. And that's why this court needs to um, make some uh, make a decision here about what it means to leave. It would also be extremely helpful to the Court of Appeals because the cases I cited in my brief, you see that the Court of Appeals kind of does this, well, sometimes it's leaving, sometimes it's not. And while the Court of Appeals has suggested that there might be a permanency uh, element to this, um, they need guidance from this court. What do you, what do you think of Mr. Walker's uh, totality of the circumstances test? Um, the facts vary from case to case. What is leaving in one case may not be leaving in another. Well, to some extent, he is correct with the totality of the circumstances. His five-factor test, however, uh, fails because, as Your Honor pointed out, it only applies to this test. And that's why if we go back to my original rule, which is you permanently leave if you either, you have to show that there was an intention to permanently leave or that there's an inability to return, then those factors can come in and you can take a look at those, applying it to the, the two factors, essentially, the two the two practices factor test. And then your, your but, analysis is that uh, you either have to intend to leave and know that you have an, you, if you have an intent, then you know you have an intent to leave. Correct. If you have an inability to return, you need to know you have an inability to return. That's correct. And that's okay. under Mickey Lack. Exactly. Um, there was also a lot of discussion here about he had some sort of obligation to have a secondary address. There's nothing in the statute that requires anyone to have a secondary address. Absolutely nowhere in there. And there's absolutely nothing in the statute that says he can't leave for three days and go stay at grandma's house. He never stayed at grandma's house before. He doesn't need to register this. What about the point, though, that, <coughs> that your client needed to make some financial arrangements in order to continue to be able to stay at the hotel? He had, Your Honor. He had a credit card on file, and that is what the uh, manager had testified to, that he had a credit card on file. That credit card was being run every week, as evidenced by the fact that it was run at 11 o'clock on April 3rd. Mr. Alarcon wasn't there. It was simply run. Mr. Alarcon did not have to go into the uh, uh, manager's office and say, hey, run that credit card you have on file. He didn't need to call him. He didn't have to show up. It was simply being done week by week. So there was an agreement, and there was a payment uh, uh, a bill, a, a, the, the, sorry, uh, 
I guess what Thank you're you. saying, what you're, I guess what you're saying is that because uh, the practice was for 10 straight weeks that this credit card was going to pay, that we can assume that the credit card continued to pay? That was at least the plan is that it would continue to pay. And it, there was nothing in the record that suggested that Ellercon had to go and see the manager and say, run it, because the manager testified that it ran, he ran it at 11 o'clock on April 3rd and Ellercon wasn't there. It's there, no There's different. a rational it's inference no that can be drawn from that series of events that it would be paid again. Absolutely. I was going to say, it's no different, is it, than um, I have a credit card at my the gym that I belong to, and they run it faithfully every month, whether I show up or not, and no matter what, they run it. That is the agreement. And it shows up on my credit card the bill. The problem that I have is that he has been convicted of an offense which requires him to register as a predatory offender. And it seems that we are going out of our way to give him leeway, which one of the issues is, is to protect the public from a predatory offender. And that's my issue. I mean, even with all the questions posed by my colleagues, I, we, that's, that was the intent of the whole um, requirement to have to register. And he didn't have his credit card on file. He had a relative's credit card. I mean, why is it not his obligation to at least leave a phone number so the hotel can call and say, hey, guess what? The credit card didn't, it didn't work. I mean, it, you didn't, I don't have any payment here. I mean, it just seems like we're going so far to ensure that this, that he has these rights when he's the predatory offender. I just have a real problem with that. He was following the statute, and it's what is in the statute that he must follow. There is nothing in the statute that says if you're staying at, a, if an offender is staying at a, at a hotel that he has to provide a phone number to the manager. Perhaps the manager should have asked for one. Maybe that's a policy. Maybe it's not a policy. Maybe he had a phone number. I don't know. Maybe he had a phone number and it didn't uh, work out. It, he couldn't get a hold of him. But that's not what the statute provides. And we have to look at what the legislative intent was. I don't disagree with you, Your Honor. It is an accountability, but it's not micro accountability. It is an overall accountability here. And there's nothing in the statute that says that he couldn't go away for three days and say, I'm sorry, I'm out of time, Your Honor. Maybe. So, uh, so uh, I'm wondering if, um, uh, if there wasn't uh, an intermediate step available here. Is there an argument that, uh, that this was potentially, that his behavior here was a probation violation or uh, some other kind of uh, occasion for the probation officer and the defendant uh, to have some interaction rather than a criminal charge? It certainly could have been a probation violation. They could have violated him under that. But because he was arrested, uh, I think that that just kind of took on a life of its own. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.